As many of you know who have been with us attending here at the church over the years, October, in October, there's a special event that we celebrate here at this church and an event that we should celebrate as believers. On October the 31st, almost uh, over 500 years ago now, 1517, a theology professor named Martin Luther posted a writing on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And in that writing, he challenged the teachings of the leaders of the church and the practices of many in the church. The more Luther studied the scriptures as a theology professor, the more he began to see how far the church had drifted from the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so Luther made every effort that he could to bring about reform from within. And that was one of his acts of bringing about a reform, was to post this, this writing. Many believe he did it in protest, but he didn't. The church door at this time served as a community bulletin board. So people would often nail things there for consideration. And Luther actually wrote his 95 Thesis in Latin, which was the language of the scholars at that time, which showed that he wanted a, a, a kind, calm discussion among the scholars to consider these things. But little did Luther know what would happen would be everyone would find out what he had written because his students took that writing down and they translated it into German and used the, the um, newly invented printing press to run off copies of his 95 Thesis to send out all over everywhere. So the word would get out. But Luther's desire initially was to bring about reform from within the church according to Scripture. But instead of opening the door for change, many closed the door on Luther and they forced him and many other so-called protesters out of the church. And what resulted from that was that Protestant congregations were, were started and the spread of, of Protestantism spread all across Europe. And, and as many of you know, because I, I, I remind you of this often, we have benefited from that. The very fact that we can gather together and that we gather together with the Bible in the English language in our preferred translation, the reason why we hold so strongly to the core doctrines of the Christian faith and preach unapologetically that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of that comes as a result of the contributions of men like Luther. And uh, if you want more information on that, just be sure and join us in October. We, we normally focus on that in October. I also taught a, a class for two years on church history. So look at, uh, go back to that, revisit that. A lot of those lessons were focused in there. But when you study Luther's life, you learn before Luther became a monk before he became a theology professor, before he developed these deep biblical convictions, he was studying to be a lawyer. But one night while traveling, 
He was caught in a terrible thunderstorm and he feared for his life and so he made a commitment on that night, if I survive this thunderstorm, I will become a monk. And he did and so he became a monk and he devoted himself to the Lord. And as Luther did, he began to really wrestle with this question of how can one be made right with God? You see, Luther, even at this time, before he was doing an in-depth study of the, the Word of God as a professor, before that time, he still had a very high view of who God is and a very realistic view of who he was. He was being taught by the church that it is faith plus good works that make one right with God. He was told that through, through works of satisfaction, through the practice of confession and, and fasting and prayer and giving and serving and going on pilgrimages, through being devoted in this way, one could be made right with God. And that just did not ease Luther's restless soul. He learned through experience that that could not be the answer. In fact, when he thought about the righteousness of God, he despised that doctrine because if, if God was going to hold Luther to his standard, Luther knew he fell infinitely short. It was not until Luther began to study the scriptures that he discovered that salvation is a work that God does. It's a work that he has accomplished for us through the person and work of his son, Jesus. And it's made available to us by grace alone, through our faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is that biblical truth that led this lawyer turned monk, turned theology professor to saving faith and is what led him to become one of the greatest reformers in Christian history. And I share all of that with you this morning because today I want to share with you a story about another lawyer who had a question similar to Luther's who got to ask it directly to Jesus. We're going to look at that question this morning and we're going to discuss Jesus' response. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, this morning we find ourselves at a very familiar parable. This is what is popularly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm going to read this parable for us and then we're going to break it down. So let's begin by reading Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 30. This is God's word, believers, hear it. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii 
and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. In Luke 10, we have a very familiar story. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one that most everyone in the church knows about and folks outside the church know about. It's not uncommon for this parable to be referenced in the news or on a, a TV show or in a movie. Many of you know when someone is referred to as being a Good Samaritan, you know what that means, right? But, but here's, here's the thing. While that's the case, while this is a popular parable, this parable is often misunderstood. Many think this parable is all about the fact that we need to be showing compassion to those in need. That's what I often learned in Sunday school. Many use this parable to support their belief that this is really what the church is to be all about. Really what the church is to do is just ditch doctrine and help people. Many believe that's what the parable is about, showing compassion to those in need. And, and don't hear me say that that's not what we should be doing. We, we absolutely should, but that is not the only thing that we're to be doing as God's people. And listen, that's not the main point of this parable. It's not. So the question then is, well, what is the main point of the parable? Well, for those of you all who are familiar with how to study the parables. Remember, we did a study of how to study parables a couple of years ago in our equipping class. You know that the key to getting to the main point of the parable is to examine the context surrounding the parable and look at what is said or what is asked of Jesus that prompts him in the, to, to tell the parable that he tells. If you, can, if you can answer those questions, you'll be well on your way to discovering the main point of the parable. So let's do that here. Let's look at the context surrounding this parable. And when we do, we find that what prompted Jesus to tell this particular parable was a question that was asked him by a lawyer and a statement made by him and another question that was asked him by this lawyer. Now, lawyers at this time, in this context, were not men who worked in the profession of law like we, we think of it today, but one who was an expert in the interpretation of Jewish law, the, the Torah, an expert in the writings of Moses and the teachings found in the Hebrew Bible. And so this, this expert asked Jesus a question in verse 25, and Jesus answers it in verse 26, and then in, in verse 27, the, the lawyer answers the question that Jesus asks. See, Jesus answers his question with the question. He often does that, verse 26. 27, the lawyer answers Jesus' question, and then Jesus says in verse 28, he basically says, the answer you gave me is a good answer, and then he tells this man to do something. Then in verse 29, the lawyer follows with another question which prompts Jesus to tell this parable in verses 30 through 35. He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. You with me? If not, you will be before we're done. I'm confident in that. And again, while this is a story that we all know, remember that this story is told by Jesus in response to what this lawyer says. That's very, very important. And I also want you to remember this. 
Jesus telling this story is showing this lawyer something about his own heart. That is key for you to understand this parable. If you miss that, you'll miss the main point of the parable. Then at the end of the story, Jesus asked the lawyer another question, and the lawyer answers correctly once again, and then Jesus tells him to do something once again. So we're going we're gonna to break this passage down, and I want you to see four things here. I want you to see the question the lawyer asks, the question Jesus asks, the answer the lawyer gives, and then the problem with the lawyer's answer. That's the, that's the outline. Notice first the question the lawyer asks. Look at verse 25 of Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus is teaching. Remember, he's on his journey on the way to Jerusalem from Galilee. And this lawyer, this Bible scholar, this expert in the law of Moses, stands up and he asks a question, really trying to size Jesus up, to put him to the test. He says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, while this man was not asking this question in good faith, this question is a good question, and Jesus acknowledges that. He doesn't replace the question. He doesn't rebuke the question. Sometimes he did to ask a question of even a greater significance. But he accepts this here as a perfectly good question. And I want you... To, to notice here that while this is a, a good question that the lawyer asks, it's not a unique question. This question of what must I do to inherit eternal life, this was really the question of the hour. This was the question of the day. Several chapters over, if you keep flipping in Luke to chapter 18, we arrive at the story of the rich young ruler. Very, very similar to the story here. We're told this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Almost the exact same question. In Luke's sequel to his gospel in the book of Acts, after Peter preaches at Pentecost, we're told that, that the crowd, they're cut to the core, they're convicted by his message and they ask, What shall we do? Similar question. Keep going in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 16. And we have Paul and Silas who are in prison at Philippi. And remember there's an earthquake and the cells of the prison doors are, are, are opened. And the, the jailer is scared thinking they're all gone. He's going to end his life. But then Paul tells him, don't do that. We're all here present and accounted for. And that jailer, he, he falls at their feet and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So we, we see here that this question, though a good question, was a, a common question in that day. A question that both Jews and Gentiles were very concerned with. How can I stand before God? How can I be forgiven of sin? How can I be made right with God? And this was not just a question that those in the first century wrestled with, but those that, that people have wrestled with throughout history. It's a question that Luther wrestled with, remember? He knew he was a sinner. 
He knew he was flawed. And in his first few years in the monastery, he wrestled with how a sinful person can, can be made right before God and enter into God's presence. It's an important question, isn't it? Not just for then, but for today as well. It's the most important question in life. Well, Jesus answers this question, but not in the way you might think. He answers it with a question. That's point number two. Let's look at the question Jesus asks. Look at verse 26. The lawyer stood up and asked Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So he answers the lawyer's question with a question. And notice that Jesus' question within that question contains the source for where you find the answer to that question. Jesus says, what is written in the law? What does the law say? What is written in Scripture? What does the Bible say about eternal life and how one can inherit it? Get this, folks. Jesus is showing us here in this question that the most important question in life is found in the Word of God. The answer is found there. He doesn't ask this man, what do you think? What do people in your world say? That's where we often go to find answers to that question. Now he says, what does the Bible say? Very, very important for us to hear and be reminded of. The answers to the most important questions in life are found in the Word of God in the Old and New Testament. Answers to the question of who God is, who we are, why we are here, what's wrong with the world, and how can that which is broken be made right. All of those answers are found in one book, in God's Word. So Jesus points this man to Scripture when asking him this question back to him. And notice the answer the lawyer gives. That's our next point, the answer the lawyer gives. Jesus asks, what is written in the law? He says, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And how does Jesus respond? Bingo. Bingo. You're right. You have answered correctly. He says, do this and you will live. Now that response may be shocking to you at first glance if you're not familiar with this story. If you were not familiar with this story, you may have thought Jesus may give a, a Luther-esque type answer. There's nothing you can do. You're, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Maybe you would expect Jesus to answer the way Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2 and say, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. But Jesus doesn't do that here. This lawyer gives a summary of the Ten Commandments. He says, to inherit eternal life, one must love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself. And Jesus says, that's right. And then notice what he says, do it. Do it and live. Folks, that is huge in this passage. 
Twice Jesus says this. These statements, they serve as bookends of this parable. On the, on the front end and the back end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Both times Jesus says, do this. Keep these commandments. What's going on? Well, understanding this answer is absolutely critical to understanding the point of this parable. The point Jesus is driving home here is that while the lawyer is giving correct answers to the question, he's not doing what he says. He's not keeping these commandments. None of them are. That's the point. Jesus is getting around to showing this man his heart. That leads us to the last point, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Last point is this. Notice the problem with the lawyer's answer. The problem with the lawyer's answer. While he knows the right answer, he's not living the right answer. And that is revealed in the question that the lawyer asks next and in the parable that Jesus tells. After giving the answer that to inherit eternal life, one must love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. Look at what happens in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Now underline that. Desiring to justify himself. Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who am I to love as myself, Jesus? Who's my neighbor that I'm to love? Now that question should tell you and me a whole lot. If this man was loving as he should, everyone as he should, he wouldn't have even had to ask that question, right? He could have just said, good, I'm doing that and move on. But he doesn't. He says, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus responds with this parable. And again, Jesus tells this parable to show this lawyer the sin of his own heart. So this story about the Good Samaritan is not about being a better person. Jesus is not telling this parable to show this lawyer you need to love your neighbor in this way so you can have eternal life. But he is showing him his sinfulness, his wretchedness, and his need for salvation. He does the same thing in Luke chapter 18 with the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, asks a similar question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus essentially responds in the same way. He says, keep the law. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, all of these I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus says this, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me and we're told when the rich young ruler heard that he became extremely sad because he was very rich now why does jesus say this to the rich young ruler what jesus is doing here is he is showing this rich young ruler his heart this man said he had kept all the commandments of God. So Jesus calls for him to obey the first commandment, to love God more than anything else. And the rich young ruler goes away because he's got a lot of money. What's his problem? Money is his master. Wealth is his God. This, Jesus is, is showing this man his heart. 
He is revealing to him his sin. Now in our passage for today, notice Jesus doesn't look to the first several commandments that deal with loving God, but he looks at the latter half that deal with loving your neighbor as yourself. And the reason why is because he knows this lawyer's heart. This man is a zealous Jewish lawyer who has complete disdain religiously and ethnically for Samaritans. He can't stand them. None of the Jews at this time could. Samaria was in the old northern kingdom, and for those of you who remember your Old Testament, you know that after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was divided. Ten of the twelve tribes went north and settled in that area, and then two of the twelve remained in the south, and both struggled terribly with sin. The north more than the south, they both fell into captivity. The north fell first to the Assyrians, and then over time, the Jews in that area, they began to intermarry with the Gentiles, with the pagans, and this mixed race came from those unions, and, and the Samaritans, the Samaritan group was, was formed, and not only did they intermarry with the pagan Gentiles, but they also adopted their pagan beliefs as well, and they got blended into the Jewish beliefs, and, and they formed a system of beliefs very different from the Jews in the South. For example, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They ignored the poetic writings, the Psalms, and the writings of the prophets. They rejected anything that spoke of, of the place in Jerusalem, the temple of, in Jerusalem being the, the true place of worship. They believed it was in the north, in Mount Gerizim, and therefore, for that reason, for many others, the Jewish people hated them for this reason so Jesus knowing this is where this man is knowing the condition of his heart tells this story about a Jewish man who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead and he tells about first a priest and then a Levite who comes along and notice the way Jesus mentions them coming along he said by chance a priest by chance a Levite, surely these guys are going to help this guy out, right? He's fortunate. They're, they're passing along the way. These would have been men that the lawyer would have loved. And notice what happens. They don't offer any sort of assistance. They walk by on the other side. Then Jesus says, but of all people, a Samaritan comes on his way to Jerusalem. And he does something that's very, very shocking. He rushes to this man's aid. He spends the entire day with this guy, medicates him, puts him on his own animal, takes him to an inn. He gives two denarii to the innkeeper, two days wages. He gives it to him to take care of him. And he basically says, hey, look, if it costs more than that, on my way back through, I'll stop back by. I'll pay you whatever the difference is. Wow, right? What a service. This Samaritan did for this Jewish man. What's the purpose of Jesus telling this story? Again, is it about helping those in need? Is this a story that speaks against racism? This, this story is often used in that way. And the Bible does speak to those issues. But think about the context again. Jesus is explaining here to the lawyer what it looks like to love your neighbor. And who your neighbor is. 
Jesus is showing this man how far this command goes. And then after telling the story, notice he asked the lawyer straight up, look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And then notice the lawyer's response. He says, the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't even mention him by name. But he answers correctly. Jesus acknowledges, once again, correct answer. Then notice what he says in response. Jesus says, you go then and do likewise. Now what's up with that? It seems as if for a second time. Jesus gives a works-based answer to salvation. When talking to the rich young ruler, Jesus showed him how deep the command goes to love God. When talking to the Jewish lawyer in Luke 10, he shows him how deep the command goes to love one's neighbor. And while the lawyer again had the right answer to the question, he did not have the right attitude in actions. You see, loving God... And loving your neighbor is a good response. It's a great answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life if you can do it without a hitch? That's the whole point of the exchange between Jesus and the lawyer. That's the whole point of Jesus saying twice, do it. He is showing this man his complete inability to perfectly meet the demands of God's command. The whole point of the exchange between Jesus and the lawyer and Jesus telling this parable is to show this lawyer, you can't do it. You can't. You can't do anything by your own power, in your own strength, to inherit eternal life. No one can. Jesus wanted this man to come to this realization. Luther came to this realization in the 1500s. He was asking the same question. And while he tried with all his might, he was the monk's monk. That's the way they referred to him. He fell infinitely short. We can't do it. And God affirms this in his word. There are none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short. Every man and woman who has ever lived has fallen short. Everyone that is, except for Jesus. Because God requires perfection, because we have all fallen infinitely short of that standard, God, out of his own goodness, because he is a God of mercy and grace and love, decided to provide for us what he requires of us in Jesus Christ. He sent his son, who was everything we're not, who accomplished everything we failed to accomplish. He lived for us the perfect life we could never live. He died for us, was raised for us, so that we through him, through faith alone, in him alone, could be forgiven of sin and made right with God. That is the only way that we can inherit eternal life. That is the only way that we can be saved because we have failed to meet the demands of God's command. We have to trust in the one who met those demands on our behalf, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, folks, there are many in our churches today who know a lot of Bible, can give a lot of the right answers, 
Jesus tells us here it's going to take a whole lot more than the right answers to inherit eternal life. For us to enter into God's kingdom, for us to spend eternity in His presence, we can't just have the right answers. We have to have the right life. A perfect life that has been lived before God in accordance with His word. Praise be to God, one has come and has lived that life for us, died the death we deserve to die for our sin, conquering sin and death through his death and resurrection. Jesus has done this for us so that we through him can be forgiven of sin and made right with God and have life in his name. You're listening in. You're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I pray that the Spirit of God would, would wake you up with the Word of God to the truth of God. That that, trusting in your own works and not in Christ, that's the way of death. If I'm speaking to you, I pray that God would reveal that to you. Your own works won't come close to cutting it. It's like standing on the shoreline and jumping into the ocean. We may jump in at different points, some further than others, but we're all going into the ocean. No one is going to scale it. That's like it is in our, in our good works. Some may do a little better than others, but we all land in a sea of sin. There is only one way to inherit eternal life, and that is... By placing your faith and trust in the person and work of Christ alone. If you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I invite you today. Turn from your sin. Bow the knee to Jesus. Make him your Lord and be saved today. Let's pray together.